Welcome to Accelerated. I'm your host, Vitaly Golom, partner and mobility and sustainability global practice lead at award-winning tech investment bank, Drake Star. On this season of the podcast, we're hearing from some of the global leaders in everything electric and autonomous moving us quickly into the future. On this episode, I speak with Dr. Chetan Marichli, co-founder and CEO of Locomation, a Pittsburgh-based startup building autonomous trucks. Previously, he was special faculty and commercialization specialist at the National Robotics Engineering Center at Carnegie Mellon University, where he led the machine learning and perception group. In the past, he has been involved with many urban and off-road autonomous and semi-autonomous commercial and even defense driving applications. And his research has been published in over 40 publications on a range of topics in machine learning, computer vision, and robotics. We spoke about soccer playing robots, why not all problems are worth solving. We did not talk about secret autonomous military projects, or did we? We did speak about when we might finally have full self-driving vehicles, how autonomous trucks will affect driving jobs, why engineers don't think about the trolley problem, and how to be happy, and much more. Chetan, thank you very much for being on Accelerated. Uh, where does the podcast, uh, where we find you today? Oh, I'm in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and thanks for having me. My pleasure, and uh, looking forward to learning a lot about autonomy from from one of the experts, uh, one you know, somebody who's started in academia and, um, and has taken it to commercialization. But let's start at the beginning. Uh, tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what you were into as a kid. I was born and raised in uh, Istanbul, Turkey, and I lived there for the first three quarters of my life so far, including all of my, my educational uh, levels, except for my PhD, where I came in the middle of my PhD to Carnegie Mellon. Uh, First, as a, as a researcher, most of my research happened at CMU, and after finishing my degree, I, I moved to the States uh, and uh, continued in the, the academic uh, path for a number of years before gradually moving more and more towards uh, entrepreneurship and actual applied uh, technology deployment. Now, as you mentioned, and much like uh, a lot of other leaders in autonomy in such a deep technology space, you spent a number of years in academia. Uh, tell us a little bit about what areas you studied. What were your focus areas there? Uh, I'm a computer scientist by training. I did all of my degrees, my undergrad, my master's, and my PhD in computer science, but always with a focus on artificial intelligence and, and robotics. So from very early on, I was very much interested in computers. And right after that, I was interested in computers making decisions on their own which led me to, uh, to, to artificial intelligence. And that also naturally and gradually expanded into robots, making their own decisions and doing meaningful work, useful work uh, about real world problems in real world. So that's, that's the, the progression of my, uh, not just a keen interest, but that also shaped my, my career in terms of uh, research and becoming a systems engineer. Or, or an engineer with a systems view of the, the problems. Yeah, and that's certainly useful when you're jumping into autonomy, which has so many, you know, pun intended, moving pieces uh, on the technology side. Now, uh, before we jump into that, t t tell us a little bit about kind of some of your favorite projects and breakthroughs, because I know you worked on a number of different things before. I've, I've been, I've been uh, one of the luckiest people in the world to always uh, have been given the opportunity to be part of very, very cool projects. And um, not in a particular order, uh, but maybe it's going to come as a, almost like a chronological order. The very first uh, super cool thing uh, in the area of AI and robotics that I was a part of uh, was a, a robot soccer uh, project. Uh, it's basically building a team of robots to play soccer. 
And uh, on, of course, on a miniaturized field with some form of simplified elements and some simplified rules. But the goal of gradually expanding that to eventually building a team of robots or androids or whatever we will call them at that time to play against a human team uh, in a regular uh, field against the FIFA rules and win. There is a, a, a international competition called RoboCup. Uh, for this with the goal of beating the last uh, champion of the FIFA World Cup by 2050. So I was a part of the, the Turkish team and back then there was only one Turkish team. It, in, in fact, we were the only team uh, in, the, in the East Europe. Uh, that was so cool. And the reason why it was cool was first it involved actual robots actually doing things. So that was mind-blowing for me. Second, that was my first introduction to importance of well-defined problems so that you can benchmark your solutions again. So instead of uh, shooting darts in a dark room with your eyes closed, you know exactly what end goal means, what uh, progression means. You can define metrics, you can evaluate how well or how bad you are doing against those. The third piece uh, that I am still extremely grateful for such an early introduction to the concept is the importance of systems. So a robot is only meaningful if it, as a robot, it operates. It doesn't uh, matter if it has the best computer vision or the best legs or the best whatever, if the rest of the system does not work. So that was such a uh, such an important uh, lesson and such a subtle thing that no one pulled me to the side and said that, hey, like, listen, this is important. Systems are important. That's an organic and very natural part of the understanding. But once you, once you see that, you cannot unsee it. And that, is, uh, that was my maybe first, uh, not breaking away from academia, but understanding it is not about unidimensionally making progress. It is about thinking in terms of systems and their eventual purposes, which crafted my, my way of thinking about everything, including what I'm doing today. Yeah, so really kind of solving a problem and not just doing the typical thing, uh, which is just just generating some technology and worrying about somebody else commercializing it some uh, down the line. So that's actually that leads me to my next question. You know, what made you finally go from academia and research to commercialization and becoming an entrepreneur? As I mentioned, I, I, I was from early on interested in uh, building systems that do meaningful work in real world. So that uh, made me realize that that made me uh, find my actual calling. And that also uh, taught me another lesson uh, about not all problems are worth solving in every environment. So there are problems that are inherently more suitable for pure academia. Because in academia, we sometimes do things just for the sake of doing them. And that is what just wonderful. That's how we advance the basic science. But in uh, other parts, applied engineering, there has to be a, a meaningful purpose if we are to do something. We can do a lot of things, a lot of problems can be solved, but you don't prefer to solve most of the problems if there is no tangible next steps. And in the commercial uh, setup, as a, as a founder and um, now CEO of a, of a startup now, my goal is to build a system that will bring some commercial value. And that is, when I say it like that, it, it sounds super obvious, but it's actually not super obvious to, to everybody in the, in the entrepreneurship area, it, especially uh, for the super technical and academic-based founders. Uh, it is very easy to confuse uh, what you want to do 
versus what you need to do. You know, you're going to like, you, you, you might love this, you might hate this. When I was a VC, a corporate VC at Hewlett Packard, uh, one of the rules that I learned from one of my mentors in venture capital is to never invest uh, into a team with more than two PhDs. <laughs> Uh, because because the or actually sometimes even one because it takes uh, the amount of time and patience that it takes to get a PhD is the exact opposite of the attitude you want to uh, to be as an entrepreneur with that sense of urgency. So uh, so tell us about your first venture. Um, I I, I want to make sure I pronounce it right. I believe me. Oh yes, uh, that was uh, that was uh, the I there is it's a Turkish word so it doesn't mean much in English but uh, and. That Bilishim is that word. It means, it means informatics. And I there uh, was a, a, a placeholder for uh, everything from uh, and mostly mostly around intelligence, intelligence, information, and that a lot of words that we care about actually starts with I, and uh, that's that's how and why we we named it. It's almost like naming your company or renaming your company to Meta so that it can go anyway. It was a robotics startup. It was, again, started by myself, my my brother, who is my co-founder at Locomation and our chief technology officer, and uh, a third friend, very good friend of us. And our goal was to uh, define a big grand problem. And for us, that grand problem was to build the ultimate service robot that will be generic enough to live among ourselves, interact with humans, and do some meaningful work to be defined. But in order to get there, we defined three, uh, we decomposed the problem into three parts, and we tried to define three separate products that we can work on early on, learn the lessons, make, get some commercial success, and pave the way for the eventual integration into one coherent robot. Uh, we've done some work that, that was clearly beyond its time, and uh, with literally no money. So we, my, myself and my brother, we were grad students. We were doing our research. We were doing the Robot Sucker project. And we started this company to prototype robots, but we didn't have any money to actually do so. So inside the company, we were also moonlighting for another company, doing some work for hire, so that we could make some money, so that we could use that money to build prototypes, so, that, so on and so forth. It was super engaging, super fun. But it was also super draining. And ultimately, uh, while we got a lot of things right from a technical standpoint, uh, it turns out that we got a lot of things wrong from a business standpoint. So there was no actual commercial viability in, in many of the things that uh, we attempted. So that just reinforced the, the hammered on the value of not all problems are worth solving. They might be very tempting. They might be very attractive and fun intellectual challenges but not necessarily commercial uh, projects. Yeah, it sounds like uh, the movie Bicentennial Man. That's, it sounds like that's what you were trying to build, right? Exactly, exactly. That was the, that was the holy grail. That was where we yeah, wanted, of course. To, wanted to go. And against the backdrop of uh, back in the day, uh, we are talking about 2007, 2008, Honda's Asimo was the mm -hmm. highly sought after uh, up-and-coming big, big project. And of course, we did not have the resources. Honda... Uh, did and we uh, were thinking that a part, certain parts of that system uh, should be made differently. Mm -hmm. So we were basically going after our own our, our own philosophy. Our technical philosophy, is, again, was right, but commercial philosophy was not right. So great learning experience. 
Absolutely. Now that brings us to to locomotion and how you started the company. Tell us a little bit about how how uh, the company got kicked off. So started locomotion with uh, four other co-founders. Uh, five of us. We we have been working together for over a decade now. Uh, prior to starting locomotion, we were at uh, Carnegie Mellon's Robotics Institute. A National Robotics Engineering Center is the applied R&D branch of Robotics Institute, uh, where most of the autonomous driving companies and their founders came out of, if you look at it. Um, you can trace most of the folks back to CMU and back to NREC. Most uh, crisply, uh, in 2015, Uber uh, hired a couple of dozen colleagues of us from NREC to start their self-driving division. Uh, we were the only team with autonomous driving experience that did not join them. Uh, the reason was that we wanted to do something of our own, and uh, not just for the sake of doing something of our own, we wanted the, the, the liberty uh, to choose what problem we will work on and how are we going to attack that problem. Going and joining one of these big shops, be it Waymo or, or, or Uber, would have dictated what problem we will have to work on because they had a certain view, they still do, and to a large extent, the, uh, how we should approach that problem. So we wanted to um, remain independent uh, from, from those points of view, and hence we decided to start our own company. Once we decided to start a company, of course, the big decision was that what are we going to, to work on? Our work at uh, Carnegie Mellon, uh, you asked me what kind of cool projects I was part of. At Carnegie Mellon, I was part of uh, dozens of extremely cool projects. Some of them I can talk about. Some of them are military projects that I can't talk about. Uh, it ranged from very cool autonomous vehicles on ground in the air uh, to agricultural projects, mining projects, to uh, great flavor, great great diversity of the projects. And I was just a small part of our, our team. So collectively our team have done everything imaginable from automation point of view. So we had, we could have gone after everything, but again, the life lesson of not all problems are worth solving kicked in. So we actually did a very meticulous, very analytical process of elimination, looked at many different alternatives from robotaxis to off-road mining equipment to self-driving trucks to many other uh, applications. And uh, we came up with the idea that, that uh, we formed locomotion around after that super, uh, super rigorous process. And uh, one driving hypothesis behind that was we thought, and it, now we are proven right, over time people would commute less, uh, you would go less to things, like you would commute less to work, you would commute less to supermarket, you would commute less to the movie theater now that you have Netflix. Uh, and if, you, if people are not going to things, things will have to come to people. Freight automation and freight transportation is already a multi-trillion dollar industry. And we hypothesized that it's only going to get bigger. So we decided to focus on freight as our near-term focus. If you look at our company name, Locomation, it actually captures our very diverse background and our aspirations. It basically is a, a, a combination of the words locomotion, and automation. So it doesn't say ground, it doesn't say trucks, it doesn't say this, it doesn't say that. It, what it says is automating anything that moves. That's our grand aspiration for the future. 
But of course, in the near term, we have to focus on one crisp application. And for us, that was freight transportation, middle mile, hence self-driving trucks. Very good. Yeah, no, it's a great, uh, great outline and, and uh, very logical approach. I'm really excited to share something a long time in the making with you. My first online course. Over the years, I've trained thousands of founders through my book, Accelerated Startup, and my infamous Pitching Like a Boss workshops and keynotes. Like I've done for thousands of founders, I will teach you how to pitch like a boss. And for the first time ever, I will be doing it in a cohort-based online course. This is the world's most comprehensive and intensive course for entrepreneurs and future founders on pitching. It will help you craft the perfect pitch for investors and customers. It will also help you master public speaking. Get funded, communicate your vision to grow your team and dramatically improve sales of any product. Check out golem.net slash pitching. That's G-O-L-O-M-B dot slash pitching for more information. See you there. Now, you've chosen to go into, into uh, autonomous trucks, and there are a number of companies, of course, uh, famously that have gone in the same direction, primarily because the use case is so painful, it's so hard to find drivers, um, and, and it's a 99% it's a highway driving. So for all these, all these reasons, probably you went through. Now, um, what, you know, how do you differentiate uh, locomation and, and what makes uh, your approach special? So... Um... I'm not saying that in, in any kind of bad way, uh, but when you look at the autonomous driving landscape, while different teams might be differentiating themselves in little implementation details, the overall approach it feels pretty much like a cookie cutter approach. There is one general approach and everybody is doing a flavor of that. We, <laughs> again, this is going to sound super obvious, but doing the same thing and expecting a different outcome <laughs> does not make much sense, right? Uh, you can make a... I think it's a definition of crazy, right? It's uh, literally in the dictionary. <laughs> Let's say wildly optimistic instead of crazy, because <laughs> uh, we, we, we were very opinionated, and our opinions about how autonomy should be developed and deployed actually stems from this very wide spectrum of our deep academic background, so we really understand the first principles at the fundamental science level, and we've actually created uh, a, a vast amount of that fundamental science, all the way down to the nuts and bolts of complex engineering system development, which has maybe thousands, maybe tens of thousands, maybe millions of little details. Ultimately, each of those details and how you make decisions around those uh, have a compounding impact on the eventual success of the system. So we decompose the entire autonomous driving um, problem from a technical standpoint and later on from a business go-to-market uh, deployment standpoint too, and came up with a, a quite differentiated approach for better or for worse. We have to see how it will pan out. So far, it's been going pretty, pretty good, but a, a very differentiated approach that interleaves uh, the technical progression of autonomous driving capabilities with market penetration by properly identifying what's your bullseye, what's your beachhead, and how are you going to land and how are you going to expand. We determined that, believe it or not, when we were starting the company, and since then, none of our fundamental hypotheses uh, were proven wrong. 
we never claim that we know everything or we will continue to know everything and get everything right. And we are not shy f- away from pivoting by any means. If we, if, if we wake up tomorrow and we realize that, well, boy, we were wrong on this, we'll just pivot. So far, it hasn't happened. And the very nice uh, benefit of that is from our inception, we've been just compounding momentum. We never had to change direction and lose steam or lose momentum. Now, tell us a little bit about the scale and, and stage. Kind of how big is the company? How many people on the team? And, and kind of what, where's the, what's the development of technology at the moment? Depending on your measuring stick, we are a, a very small company with respect to other AV players. We, we, we are getting around 100 people, uh, but we got to 100 people uh, in three and a half years with last year being the big inflection point. We grew four times. In the, in the past year, and uh, we are growing very aggressively while maintaining a very meticulous, very, 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 uh, to a painful extent, selective hiring process. So we are setting the bar super high, super, super high for every new team member that, that we are, we are uh, adding to our team, but we are also uh, doing it very fast. So we are slated to be a few hundred people in the next two, three years. So the, the growth will, will continue. And we deeply believe in right-sizing the team for the, uh, for, uh, for the right-sized uh, problem. So throwing more money or more headcounts to a problem, as you and I know, uh, rarely helps solving the problem faster or better. And, um, you know, we seem to be, uh, for a long time now, we're just two years away from full autonomy. Um, and, and obviously that hasn't happened. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't think of a better person to ask when do you expect we'll achieve true, you know, level four real self-driving? Yeah, that's, that's actually, uh, my, my stand-up line, if you will. So I say, I'm all, I always start, uh, exercising next Monday and autonomy is always like two years or five years away. That's peak one window. It's always that much away. One of the reasons, so first of all, let me give you a non-answer answer. I think in the next couple of years, we will start seeing some deployments in, in the autonomous tracking space. Well, clearly, Locomation has a differentiated and more crisp deployment timeline that we are, uh, we are looking to uh, start deploying commercially in the last part of next year and reaching scale in 23. Uh, but for the more traditional uh, understanding of a vehicle with no driver involved whatsoever, there are tens of thousands of those vehicles operating under a variety of conditions. I think that's going to take a really, really, really long time to get to a, a meaningful economic scale there. The, uh, and if you go back to uh, the status of like why, why it has been slipping that much, why we, we don't have them yet, and uh, more importantly, why people thought that we would have autonomous uh, vehicles in two years back then, or why they now think that we will have them in, in two years. I think one of the missing elements uh, in the industry, and uh, as, a, as a CEO of the, a, a company, I am interested in that professionally because I want to run my company against very clear metrics, very clear benchmarks, as I was uh, telling at the beginning of our conversation. But as an enthusiast in the field, I also am curious to see what is our, where is our progress bar really, and how are we measuring progress? And, most importantly, when we will know uh, or how we will know when we are done. What is the definition of done? How good is good enough? How functional is functional enough? How safe is safe enough? 
do we know or does the do the companies in the in the industry know now knowing that internally might be different than saying it externally but uh, i can only imagine if you have a very good grasp of the problem definition and if you have a very detailed internal milestone for for running that project maybe you will add some buffer on top of it but it, it's actually pretty good uh, from a uh, from a pr point of view you would have shared that and share that enthusiasm of, okay, so we are making progress towards that end line. So I think uh, the fascination with the self-driving vehicles started in such an organic way and it turned into a hype so quickly, no one had a chance of taking a step back and looking at it from a complex systems en- complex engineering system development point of view. No one had a chance to look at it from a bounded project it was always, well, it almost is working. We have prototypes, they are showing great performance. So if we can keep working on it a little bit more, sure, we will have self-driving vehicles. It, that had been the narrative uh, for the past decade almost. And only recently, uh, we are starting to see uh, some groups uh, thinking more, uh, more about safety and reliability and, and performance metrics in, um, a little bit more disciplined and principled way. And uh, Locomation, I'm very proud of uh, the work we are doing here. We are very open and very vocal about how we are thinking about this problem. And we continue to be um, thought leaders in how anyone, anyone interested in autonomous driving should think about the, the problem and the, the definition of done for the problem. Yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot of overly optimistic people keep bringing up the statistics and say that, well, autonomous cars are already safer than humans. But we can see whenever there's an incident, the tolerance for for autonomous crashes is, is absolutely zero, especially from regulators, as, as it probably should be. Otherwise, it's going to be a little too wild. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised there's certain people talking about full self-driving out there and how it's uh, already out in cars. But we'll see how that goes. When companies start to catch fire and blitz scale and look for capital to fuel that growth or look to find the right exit strategy, they often seek the counsel of investment bankers. At Drakestar Partners, we work with some of the leading companies in global tech on capital raises, M&A, corporate carve-outs, SPACs, and much more. And we're pretty good at it. Our team of over 100 technology sector experts across nine offices in six countries is comprised of not only career bankers, but experienced executive venture investors and technologists. Drakestar Partners is the number one ranked and fastest growing mid-market investment bank across the U.S. and Europe. While I focus on mobility and energy transition sector, along with all things Silicon Valley, my partners from the Pacific to the Atlantic and around the world lead in software, media, communications, and everything in between. Learn more about us at drakestar.com. You already touched on this, but uh, maybe talk a little bit about kind of why you chose the the truck market versus passenger vehicles as your first first place to apply the technology. So yeah, let me let me recap that uh, our main one of our main hypotheses uh, was that freight transportation is already very big; it's an enormous market, and the macro trends. Uh, behavioral shifts and the economic trends, global economic trends indicate that it's only going to get bigger. When you start looking at freight transportation, the bulk of the opportunities lie in the middle mile and hence in trucking. And uh, 
One big reason for that is the growing shortage of skilled truck drivers. When we were starting, this was coming and people, especially people in the industry were talking about that, but it was more whispering about it and behind closed doors. So now, of course, with the uh, contribution of the pandemic and the global supply chain crisis as a result of that, you cannot go maybe even a day without uh, reading an article about truck, sh truck driver shortage or the truck capacity crunch. But there's not a, more, people are, uh, uh, people want to ship more things, uh, want more predictability and transparency around those shipments and want to pay less for it. And traditionally, the, the trucking industry is challenged in meeting the demand, let alone uh, continuing to meet that ever-growing accelerated uh, demand. At the core of that uh, inability to meet the demand is the growing shortage of human uh, drivers. That combined with other industry inefficiencies lead to a significant asset utilization problem. So there are a lot of trucks out there, but they are not utilized enough. Uh, there are drivers out there, but uh, we are not uh, able to put the drivers to uh, very good work and augment them to get the most out of them. That, uh, when you look at from that point of view, we are always interested in first principles. That was a very, very clear, big, big, big opportunity. And we also, of course, looked at the RoboTaxi uh, application, which was super hot back in 2017, 2018, when, when we were starting locomation. But we couldn't get past the, the fact that uh, it is incredibly difficult, if not impractical, with today's technology to actually build a profitable uh, robotaxi business at scale. The unit economics are very challenging. And there is a hypothetical case that you can prove on the paper that you can build a very profitable robotaxi business, but it requires significant scale, which in turn requires a string of assumptions to go all in your direction for everything that. has to go right it, yeah it's like uh, yeah. everything has to go right and we didn't have conviction so it was very clear very very easy decision for us to go after trucking yeah i guess the case with the with the taxis with waymo and cruise is they're looking at how much uber makes and understanding that 70 percent of the cost is the driver they're thinking hey we'll let me the driver we can take 30 percent off the cost and we'll be very competitive but it's proven delayed a couple of years now, Cruise just lost their CEO as well. So we'll see how it goes and when we'll actually see these cars driving around. And, you know, here in San Francisco, Bay Area, it's uh, it's very, it's very, it, it's on everybody's mind. And we see Waymo cars all over San Francisco driving around testing. So, um, yeah, I mean, you, you brought up the, the, the truck driver jobs. Uh, economists were worried when, when autonomous driving began being just around the corner, just two years away. There was a lot of discussion about uh, drivers. You know, that's about that's a that's the single biggest profession in the U.S. is professional driving, and then besides that, you have long long distance truckers who um, who feed you know gas stations and and restaurants and things along the way. Um, where if everything's automated, all of a sudden something like ten percent of the U.S. working population is going to be heavily affected. What are your thoughts on this? You know, now that you know, we're kind of understanding the problem from a different perspective that there's in fact not enough drivers, that it's actually a really tough job. And you have this crazy turnover where it's very, very expensive for carriers to to bring on drivers. And I think last stat I saw was something like the average tenure is like maybe 10 months 
for a truck driver to stay with the company. Kind of what are, what are your thoughts on how it's going to affect jobs when we do finally get there, however many years from now? Yeah, let me let me give the punchline and then elaborate a little bit. Uh, based on our analysis, we believe that whoever is uh, driving a truck today, as long as they choose to do so, will retire as a truck driver. So this transition is a multi-generational, multi-decade transition. And here's a couple of uh, uh, points about that. Uh, there are around uh, 3.7 million plus eight heavy duty trucks in the United States. And that's a mixture of uh, long haul truck trucking and more regional and, and local uh, local trucks. But they are the, the big, uh, big guys pulling the tray, big rigs. Uh, and in the best year of the industry, uh, we built a little bit over 200,000 trucks. So if we had a magical way of solving this self-driving problem, and starting tomorrow, all we do is to build completely autonomous trucks that don't require any human drivers. It will take about 20 years to replace the entire uh, trucking fleet in the United States. And we know that we are nowhere near that level. That's one, that's one element. What will happen in the uh, near term is we will see clever solutions like locomotion's approach uh, to start bringing the benefits of autonomous driving in, uh, in an augmenting form to the human drivers. The drivers do way more than just driving the truck. It's not just about figuring out how to turn the steering wheel. There are all the little things, off nominal things, that are almost guaranteed to happen on the road if you are a long-haul driver and if you are driving hundreds and hundreds of miles every day. And human drivers are still, or humans in general, are still the, uh, the most flexible, most generic, and most capable uh, handlers of such situations. So there is a very long tail of interesting things that need to be handled by machines with such precision and such reliability and safety that it's going to take way longer to get technology to that level of maturity and it's going to take a lot of rigor to actually prove that we got the technology to that required level. So that is the part uh, where most people are underestimating because if you look at autonomous driving as a, as a technology story, there are other technology stories. Like there was nothing, and then there was TikTok, and all of a sudden they had a billion users. So the scale in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the electrons and in the bits and bytes, uh, the laws of physics and the real-world inertia still applies to some extent, but not a whole extent. Actually building something in the real world is subjected to a lot more inertia and a lot more uh, dampening factors. Even if you want to go faster, just because you want to go faster does not necessarily mean you can go faster. So there is a very natural um, rectification of how fast you can grow, even if everything is working right. And on top of that, put this incredible complexity of this problem at hand. There's no such thing as perfect product launch. The first iterations of the, the trucks will have to be safe and they'll have to be proven safe. But they will have a more limited operating environments, which means they will have to be handled or they will have to be assisted by a broader community and an ecosystem. Building that ecosystem and scaling that ecosystem while working on developing the technology is going to take time. 
We will start seeing the benefits of autonomous driving soon, but it's going to be a generational transition before we can say that, boy, do you remember the days people were driving the trucks and no one remembers it? That is a couple of generations down the road. So it's really interesting the way you describe it, because, um, you know, if we look at the two previous industrial revolutions, you know, uh, the first one was about 80 years, right? Three generations or so. Second one was cut short by uh, World War One. So it's about 64, 65 years, depends on how you count. And then the worry was that this next industrial revolution that started with the computer revolution, that it would be too fast. It would be just in one generation and it would leave a lot of people behind. Uh, what you're saying is actually really interesting because it's you're saying that it will take a couple of generations at least, or maybe three generations for this uh, technology to really transition. And that gives people a chance, you know, the people that are truck drivers that don't have computer science degrees, uh, they can't go get another job, you know, a new economy job that they, they have the opportunity to to work through their career and retire, you know, in, in what they know. So that that's actually, that's probably the best news uh, I've heard today, uh, as far as that goes. Appreciate that. Now, another thing that's brought up in self-driving quite a bit in the debate is ethics. And it's the, it's the trolley, the trolley problem, you know, who is the, uh, you know, who's the autonomous trolley going to kill, you know, the, the senior citizen or, or what have you. So what do you think about kind of this, this kind of silly decision point that people talk about? And can you explain a little bit about kind of the decision-making with an autonomous system? So I, I really, I really appreciate the, um, the, the, uh, philosophic, uh, discussions around such ethical problems. But I'm also an engineer by training, so everything I do and everything I, I think are, are guided by, are, are anchored in real life, right? So when asked about trolley problem, I can't help but uh, think about it, in what kind of a situation uh, an instance of the trolley problem can actually emerge. And the answer is that most likely it cannot, because uh, there is no situation in the real world where you are almost teleporting a self-driving vehicle in a situation at the last possible minute where the only two actions are to kill one person or to kill the other person. So I'm not sure if you like Star Trek, but it is like the Kobayashi Maru uh, simulation test where Kirk says that he doesn't believe in the no-win scenario. So not to associate myself with a super cool person like Captain Kirk, but I also don't believe in the no-win scenario here. If we do our jobs right, the self-driving vehicle, any kind of self-driving vehicle, will have thousands, if not tens of thousands or millions of decision points to make decisions and change the course before we get to this point of no return in which there are only two actions and each action is bad in its own sense. A typical uh, self-driving vehicle makes 20 to 100 decisions a second. So if you start making decisions, if you are perceiving your environment pro properly, you will have literally thousands of decision points and uh, have a way of acting so that you don't have to make that trolley problem decision in the end. So it's a great problem for the, for the ethical experts to, um, to, to opine, but it's not a relevant problem for engineers, I, I'm afraid. Yeah. It's not practical, yeah, because the decision there it's not one decision it's uh it's probably i don't know ten layers of decisions or a thousand layers of decisions before you ever get there many many decisions there's a great book that I just finished called uh, a Thousand Minds 
Is that what it's called? So it, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting walkthrough of kind of just how complex our thought processes inside the human mind and, and to replicate that in AI, you know, that's, that's kind of the next step and, and maybe a little bit far away still. Now, um, you know, it's inevitable once we finally get autonomous vehicles, be it taxis or trucks or combination, et cetera, on the roads, statistically, we will see accidents, no matter how good they are, there will be, there will be incidents, you know, maybe they won't be that often, but they will make the news. How do you think regulars, regulators are going to react to that? So the way we are uh, preparing for that future, uh, future is to approach uh, the safety in a, not just a very comprehensive way, but also in a very transparent way. And that's, uh, that actually connects back to my earlier comments on the definition of done. How good is good enough? How safe is safe enough? We first have to define that. And then we have to put evidence on the table of why we think that our system is safe enough and why we think we actually did the hard work and looked at every single risk scenario, every single safety hazard that we can possibly imagine and did something to mitigate that. So now uh, there is always actual edge cases that we can't even imagine and that might occur and no one could have seen that coming and that might lead to an incident, an accident with some damage, maybe even some fatality. So we are not going to eliminate the accidents completely, but what we can do is we can eliminate systemic accidents. Um, for instance, when people are driving, driving under influence, like every time you are driving and you are drunk, you're likelihood of getting into an accident is probably an order of magnitude or more higher. Every time you are driving and texting at the same time or scrolling on your phone, your chance of getting into an accident is substantially higher. And the reverse is also true. If you are eliminating these, if you are somehow eliminating drunk drivers and distracted drivers, you are naturally uh, pushing down the number of accidents. If and when we, uh, we scale the deployment of um, autonomous vehicles, trucks or otherwise, that's uh, only going to be possible if we have enough evidence uh, around we don't have any foreseeable systemic shortcomings of the autonomous vehicles. So we, we should not be expecting that the autonomous vehicles will lead to more accidents. It's actually quite the opposite. Machines are not distracted. Machines can pay attention to all the directions at the same time. They don't get tired. Uh, so unless there is a systemic flaw in the implementation of the, the systems, this is our job to prove that there are not, uh, self-driving vehicles will substantially improve safety. And uh, we will have the evidence that why they are, they are definitely uh, making the public roads safer, why they are safer than a typical human driver. Oh, that's a great. That's probably the best explanation I've heard about it. Uh, of of how you know the safety will be affected positively, but um, hopefully you have an opportunity to uh, to go in front of Congress when they you know when when the rules start coming in um, as far as autonomy and actually really bringing it on the roads. That would be really interesting to see. Now, what's what do you think is the biggest, from your perspective, biggest single misconception about autonomy? Uh, the overall complexity of the uh, the. Uh an autonomous system is grossly underestimated, and sometimes even by the um, experienced people in the field. There is a tendency to believe that this is more of a magical sledgehammer problem than a big carpenter and the toolbox problem. So 
there is one big element that will enable this technology. And if you can just do more of it, build a bigger sledgehammer, there are more nails that you can that you can hit on. This is not that. There is nothing magical about it. It's not a unidimensional problem. Uh, it actually is a very sophisticated engineering problem with no easy solution. So we have to build a system. Uh, we have to work on every bit, every part of the system and make that every part a little bit better in order to have a, an acceptably safe and acceptably commercially viable solution. So the uh, and it's, it doesn't sound very sexy when I say it like that, but that is the that is the reality, and that doesn't take away from the enormous opportunity and enormous uh, excitement that we should have uh, about autonomous vehicles. It's just a difficult problem. Absolutely, couldn't agree with you more. Now, just a couple of questions more, kind of on the personal front. Um, knowing what you know so far, and uh, it seems like you're having fun as a as a as an entrepreneur. Um, you know, what do you do? You enjoy entrepreneurship more than research, and kind of how? What what makes it different for you? They they I I, I still enjoy both, even though I am not actively uh, doing research in the traditional academic sense. But uh, there are there are actually more overlapping uh, areas between research and and entrepreneurship. Uh, it's it's always a quest for knowledge, and it's always a quest for strategy, and how you can. Uh, approach a, an otherwise unsurmountable problem in a different angle to make it more feasible, to, to make it within reach. Uh, I, I learned a lot in academia, and a part of me still follows very closely what's happening in the academia closer to my field, uh, but I am also enjoying the cold hard facts and the day-to-day the -day grinding of, of entrepreneurship so much. So I, I really can't I really can't choose one or the other, but I am having the time of my life. I can I can tell you that. Yeah, the feedback loop is definitely different, right? We we enjoy we get uh, we get passionate about things when we feel rewarded, whatever that may mean, right? Depending on what we're working on. So that's that's great to hear. Absolutely. Now, uh, last question, my favorite question. You know, having you know, you're kind of in the middle of your career, maybe not quite to the middle even yet. Uh, but um, you, you've had some successes and you've had a couple of changes. Uh, what would you tell your young self making a decision, you know, out of undergrad going into academia or would you have gone directly into entrepreneurship? No, actually, I, I really, if I, if I had a, a time mission, I really would not change much. I think uh, I took my time in academia and I took my time in doing all the side gigs and side gigs inside side gigs. So I was super busy, but... It all, they, they, all of these endeavors taught me very, very valuable lessons. And most importantly, all of these endeavors uh, enabled me or, or made it possible for me to be the, the dumbest person in any room I, I, I was. And uh, I got to meet my heroes. I got to learn from them. I got to work with them in many, many different areas. And what you learn from a, a, a pioneer in research is very different than what you learn from a legendary entrepreneur or a great investor or a great marketing person. So these are very different skills and I, I really wouldn't, uh, wouldn't change anything. I, I think I owe a lot of what I know today, what I think I know today, uh, at least, to my past. And uh, I have zero regrets about that. That's amazing to hear. I think uh, you found the key to happiness uh, in a very challenging field. So 
appreciate you sharing your time with with Accelerated uh, with us, with the with the listeners, and um, really excited to see how the company de- develops in the near future. And excited to hear uh, big announcements from you. So really appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Eden, for being on uh, on Accelerated, and I hope to see you soon. That was my conversation with Chetan Marichli, co-founder and CEO of Locomation. If you'd like to connect with me to discuss mobility and sustainability, you can find my website at golem.net. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to give us five stars in your favorite podcast platform and share with your friends. And we'll see you on the next one.